Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Good morning. Well, my name is Sam. I'm one of the pastors here. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, um, welcome. If you are visiting and we haven't had a chance to meet yet, welcome to our Advent series. Um, We find ourselves on the second week of our Advent series. We're taking a break from uh, our study through the book of Romans to consider the coming of Christ and specifically this theme of Uh, Advent, the coming of Christ through the lens of psalms. And so um, we're looking at various psalms. Last week, Pastor Josh uh, preached through Psalm 103, and this week we find ourselves in Psalm 2. Um, So before we begin, let me invite you to pray with me, and then we'll, we'll get started. Blessed Jesus, we can add nothing to you. We can add nothing to your glory. But it is a joy of heart to us that you are what you are, that you are so gloriously exalted at the right hand of God. We long this morning, Jesus, to fully and clearly more behold your glory according to your prayer and your promise. So please, Holy Spirit, give us eyes to see Jesus this morning. We pray these things in his strong name. Amen. Well, I must confess, brothers and sisters, I'm rather intimidated by this passage. We come now, this second week of our series through the Psalms, to um, a a psalm that just uh, seems to crackle with theological electricity. Um, You come near it and you get zapped by it. It's been the, the, the object of contemplation for Christians for thousands of years and uh, with good reason, as we'll see soon enough. We're looking at this psalm this week because Advent, in Advent, we ask the twofold question, what, uh, who is this word who became flesh, as John 1.14 tells us? Who is this word who became flesh, and what was he up to? What is he doing? Um, in becoming flesh, what is he up to? And Psalm 2 answers this question for us. And I can tell you that Psalm 2's answer to this question is not cute, 
or sentimental. What the Son is up to in the incarnation is cosmos upending, reshaping work. Christmas, Christmas is, uh, and all that it implies, is cataclysmic for the nations that rage against God. That's what Christmas is. And Christmas is a sweet, sweet comfort to all those who would take refuge in the Son. Well, let's look now at, at Psalm uh, 2, verse 1. We'll just work our way thro- uh, slowly through the psalm. So let's look at these first three verses together. The psalmist asks, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And here, like in so many other passages in the scriptures, this psalm obliterates the myth of neutrality. The myth of neutrality. It is not true that individuals or cities or cultures or nations or civilizations, it is not true that any of these things can be indifferent to the authority of God. They either hate the authority of God or they love it. Now, when we look at this passage and we see the the Lord's anointed, it's clear that on some level, David has himself in mind here as the anointed one. After all, he is the one through whom God has subdued the surrounding nations around Israel, and the nations therefore resent the bonds that God has placed on them through King David. But the anointed King David is ultimately a type of Christ a type of the one who is to come. In other words, this psalm applies to David insofar as, and only insofar as, he is a reflection of Christ and not the other way around. Jesus is the true anointed one, the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth, and he confirms what this psalm teaches, namely that neutrality is a myth. Jesus himself says in Luke eleven twenty three, he who is not with me, is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. So what this psalm teaches here is raging and plotting to burst the bonds and cast away the cords of the Lord and his anointed. What this psalm teaches is typical of all resentment of Christ's lordship. It's typical of all humanity in Adam. We saw this point driven home hard when we looked at Romans Chapter 1, verses 18 through 31, a couple of months ago. The nations are not neutral. People don't worship God, not because they don't know any better. They don't worship God because they don't want to. In Adam, they don't want to. The nations that do not kiss the sun, as we'll see at the end of this psalm, do not do so because they hate him. Whatever they do... Whatever we do, says the unbelieving nations, whatever we do, we will not worship this God and his anointed. Question, is the United States of America included among the nations that rage and plot in vain against the Lord and against his anointed? Does the United States of America show signs of resenting, resenting the authority of God and his Christ? Well, Our good, creational, 
boundaries set in place by God respected here? Is this a nation that respects, for example, the boundaries of sexual fidelity, restricting those acts to covenant marriage between a man and a woman? Is this a nation that respects the boundaries of human creatureliness? Does it insist that human beings are made in the image of God as male or female? And that their chief end is to glorify and enjoy God forever? Does it recognize, for example, the womb of a mother as that sacred place where this God is knitting together another image bearer? Does this nation insist that simply by being made in the image of God, humanity is under obligation to God and is therefore not its own God? Of course not. How could we possibly hear common phrases today like, let me live out my truth, or let me express my authentic self, which is whatever I say that it is, or I need to be my own hero, or I need to love myself before loving others, how can we hear phrases like that and not interpret them as another way of saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us? You do you is the 21st century American equivalent of let us burst their bonds apart. And this, brothers and sisters, should chasten our expectations of the trustworthiness of nations, of any nation, of this nation, if it does not, if it resents the authority of God and his Christ. There is, there is theological and biblical reason, in other words, to be suspicious of the motivations of national leaders who refuse to kiss the sun. Now, we'll get to Romans 13 next year which describes our Christian civic responsibility to submit to our governing officials. But I can tell you by way of sneak preview that whatever this passage, uh, Romans 13, teaches, whatever it does teach us, it does not mean that we are to place our absolute, unqualified, uncritical trust in the government, especially when its officials refuse to swear allegiance to King Jesus. Now, we know that from... The, the context of Romans 13 itself, but we also know that from passages like this one here, Psalm 2 as well. Think about it like this. Is it not the height of folly to place our unquestioning hope in a nation that rages and plots in vain against the Lord and against his anointed? Now, don't get me wrong. This is not the fashionable, the ever, ever more fashionable anti-American sentiment that's so common today. We always have to ask the question compared to what, and there's a lot of great things about this nation, a lot of things to be grateful for, but it is not our God, and we are foolish to make it so. Verse four. So that's what's happening, that's what's happening on the ground level, among the nations. They're scheming, they're plotting in vain. They're saying, how can we overthrow God's authority? So that's what's happening on the ground level. And then verse four he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Notice the absolute, unwavering, confident sovereignty of God. 
the laughter of God here in this passage should be read as a direct contrast to the raging and the scheming of the nations. Now, this is an important point to make because if we're not careful, we might be tempted to read this laughter here in verse 4 as cold, divine apathy. After all, when the nations rage and plot in vain against God, people suffer, don't they? The nation that rages against God is the nation in which injustice spreads like a cancer. And with respect to those sufferers, as we saw last week, God has compassion. Now the reason he can both be laughing at the nations who are raging and compassionate, uh, sorry, the, the reason he can both be laughing at the nations who are raging and also compassionate to those who are victims of that rage at one and the same time is that God is not limited like we are by changing passions and emotions. This is what theologians mean when they describe God's impassibility. He's not changing from emotion to emotion like we are. He's not wishy-washy. He's not changing from one feeling to another, one at a time. God is impassable. His emotions don't change. And his emotions don't change not because he's some cold-hearted or stoic being, but rather because his emotion is perfectly, at all times, infinite, just like everything else about him. He can never benefit, God can never benefit from a little bit more or a little bit less of any single emotion because he feels perfectly at all times. He perfectly feels perfectly at all times, which means the laughter here in Psalm 2 should not be interpreted as indifference to sufferers. It should be read as absolute power and stability, confidence. He's not shaking in his boots as the nations are raging. Now, why should this be the greatest comfort to us? Why should God's deriding, mocking laughter at the nations bring us joy? Because it assures us that absolutely nothing is outside of his control. On the ground level, it feels like everything is out of control. On the ground level, as we live in the midst of raging nations who plot in vain against God, it feels like everything is just out of control. It feels like chaos here. Long lay the world in sin and error pining. Here on the ground level, it feels like chaos. And yet, while everything looks out of control here, the heavenly scene portrays a confident God who laughs at the feeble efforts of puny man to overthrow his authority. He says, huh, how cute. Look at them. Look at them raging. Look at them trying to overthrow my authority. The heavenly scene portrays a sovereign God who places his King Jesus on the throne. And he will speak to them in his wrath. And he will bring all of the rebellious plans of the nations to nothing simply by speaking to them. This is, this is why the book of Revelation is a, such a comfort mostly to the persecuted church, to persecuted Christians around the world. It's because it was written to the persecuted church. It was written to persecuted Christians who looked around and saw that the enemies of God appeared to be having a heyday. 
ravaging the earth. Listen, to those, to those who are being grinded up by the enemies of God, it is a profound comfort to know that in heaven, God is at perfect peace. He's not frantically trying to figure out what to do next. Everything is going according to plan. And in the end, the beast is destroyed and Jesus wins. That is what Psalm 2, 4 through 6 is telling us. It tells us to not be afraid of the raging of the nations because Jesus still sits on his throne. I, th- this is not in my notes, so I'm, this is, I'm going off into uh, unsafe territory here. But let me tell you, brothers and sisters, I was profoundly disheartened to see and hear about Christians um, over this past election season, getting upset with other Christians for posting things like, remember, Jesus still sits on the throne. Why should that not bring us comfort? That's what it means to be a Christian, <laughs> to be comforted, confident and comforted by the fact that Jesus still sits on the throne while everything else seems to be going out of control. Verse 7 I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And here we come to the most quoted and most debated portion of this psalm. The most pressing question comes down to the speaker. Who's talking here who's having this conversation in these verses what is the decree who are the characters and it's clear from the new testament that on the most fundamental level the my son here in this passage is ultimately referring to jesus the spirit speaks through david to let us eavesdrop on a conversation between the father and the son that's what's happening here in this passage But we still need to ask, what's the context of this conversation? What are the father and son talking about here? What is this begetting? What is this today? Well, in the New Testament, several events of Christ's life reflect or appeal to this conversation. So our minds immediately go to the miraculous conception and birth of Christ when we we hear passages like this. Or, you know, our minds are drawn to Um, the baptism of Christ, or the the moment of transfiguration when he's on the mountain with Peter and John and, and, and the Father speaks from heaven and says, this is my beloved Son. Or also in Romans chapter 1 and Acts chapter 13, Paul quotes this passage to appeal to um, the, the fact that God keeps his promises in the resurrection of Jesus. So what is it? Is this verse describing the physical birth of Jesus, the son of Mary? Or is it talking about God's vindication of his identity at his baptism or transfiguration? Or is it talking about his vindication as the Messiah in the resurrection? What's it talking about? And the answer is yes and no. You see, at the most fundamental level, verses 7 through 9 of Psalm 2 are a poetic dramatization of a pre-temporal relationship between the Father and the Son. This today is an eternal today. 
In other words, the spirit speaks through David to reenact the son who tells of this pre-temporal, eternal, constant conversation with the father. So David says, I will tell of the decree. And then he embodies the son who says, in the timeless eternity of our triune fellowship, the Lord said to me, the eternal son, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. This doctrine uh, is a divine, or this passage is a divine drama to illustrate the awe inspiring doctrine we call eternal generation. Maybe this is a new phrase for you eternal generation. This doctrine affirms that the Father, Son, and Spirit are understood only in relation to one another eternally. That the Father is eternally the Father of the Son. This today is a timelessly eternal today. Never was there a time that the Father began to generate the Son. What it means for the Father to be the Father is that the Father is eternally the begetter of the Son. He is eternally begetting the Son. Never was there a time that the Son was not generated by the Father. Like how uh, the, the source of a light is indiscernible of apart from the light itself, apart from the light that it generates. So the Father must be understood eternally as the Father who generates the Father of the Son. This is why the author of Hebrews calls the Son the radiance of the glory of God. He's the radiance of the Father. A light and its radiance are not distinct in essence. They're mutually defining. So this passage is tipping us off onto an eternal relationship between the Father and Son. They are eternally related to one another. But that's not all this passage tells us. The Son's speech is not over, for He goes on to announce how the Father invites Him on the basis of this relationship. He invites Him to ask of Me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel." Because the Son is the eternally begotten Son of God, the nations are His heritage. It is fitting, in other words, because the Son is the one who's eternally begotten from the Father, it's fitting that He, not the Father nor the Son, became incarnate to live and die and rise again to receive the nations as His heritage. Advent, in other words... Advent is the beginning of the Son claiming what is rightfully His. Advent is the beginning of the Son claiming the nations. When He came in humble form as a babe in Bethlehem, He was coming to claim the nations. And He does this in the most counterintuitive way. He assumes a weak and fragile nature. The incarnation is a magnificent display of God shaming the wisdom of the wise with divine folly. It's baffling. It's awe-inspiring that this eternally begotten one, the one who is always timelessly, eternally begotten from the Father, the one who shares the essence with the Father, the divine essence, is also the one who comes as a humble babe. It's baffling, it's awe-inspiring, and it is beautiful. This is how he begins to claim his heritage of the nations. He comes in humility and kindness 
to fetch them. Verse 10. David goes on to say, Now therefore, O king, be, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. This final instruction to the kings to be wise should not surprise us at all. We're, we're coming full circle to how this psalm began. There's this, there's this relationship between its opening and its closing. The nations, we now know, are utterly foolish for raging and plotting in vain against God and, and against his son. It's all in vain. It's all destined for ruin. And so now David is in effect saying, nations, don't be stupid. Plotting against the Lord and against his son will get you nowhere. Be wise. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoicing, with trembling. Don't attempt to throw off the bands of the sun and protest to his rule. Kiss him. Swear your fealty to him. To him. Acknowledge and rejoice in his authority. The alternative is to face his wrath unprotected. And don't miss the irreducibly political nature of this psalm. While this principle, what this psalm teaches, applies to all people everywhere, Psalm 2 is specifically talking to kings. It's calling out nations, the, the rulers of the nations. And so it, it, it invites us to ask the question, what is their ultimate responsibility as civil servants, as magistrates, as governing officials, as kings? What is their ultimate authority. Their responsibility is to be wise, which means, which looks like serving the Lord with fear and rejoicing and trembling. It means kissing the sun. The king who refuses to do so is foolish by definition. This psalm is addressed to all of the rulers and the kings of this world, and they ignore it to their peril. So does Christianity have anything to say to, to, uh, to authority figures? Does, does Christianity have anything to say to the rulers of this world? You betcha. This is the message. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Now the imagery here at this last couple of verses is striking, isn't it? Almost as if to give the reader whiplash. We read, Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. And then, very suddenly, blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Now, this may seem uh, like a contradiction, but it's not. He is a stone that threatens to crush you in his wrath, but if you would swear your allegiance to him, him his strength will be for you a fortress and a refuge from all harm. He is both the greatest danger and the greatest protector. And far from being a deterrent from coming to him, Christ's awesome strength is what makes his goodness such a comfort. Think about this. A kind-hearted yet impotent and weak father is no comfort to a child who is frightened of the neighborhood dog. That's not a comfort to him. And... A strong and yet cruel father is no refuge for the, for the vulnerable child. 
You see, the gentler the father is toward the child and the stronger and fiercer he is towards a threat, the safer the child. Security is found in his dad's dangerous power. The child feels safe in his father's arms, not in spite of his dad's strength. The child feels safe in his father's arms because he knows that his enemies are unsafe in those same arms. C.S. Lewis captures this sense of dreadful and terrifying goodness in his Narnian Christ figure Aslan, who, according to Mr. Beaver, is not tame, but he's good. In one of the books in this series, The Silver Chair, uh, the protagonist is a girl named Jill Pohl. And when she sees Aslan for the first time, before she knows who he is, she's frightened, just like you and I would be frightened if, if we saw a big lion sitting just a couple of yards in front of us. But then the lion speaks, and her fear changes in nature. It says, the voice was not like a man's. It was deeper, wilder, and stronger, a sort of golden voice, heavy, it did not make her any less frightened than she had been before, but it made her frightened in a rather different kind of way. That's a reverent fear. Well, eventually Jill is sent by Aslan on a quest, and without giving too much of the story away, I'll tell you that she, she fails in many of the tasks along, along the, the way to complete this quest. She completes it eventually, but not without a lot of sinning and failing and bickering and fighting with her fellow travelers along the way. And at the end of the book, she sees Aslan again, and here's what happens. I have come, said a deep voice behind them. They turned and saw the lion himself, so bright and real and strong that everything else began at once to look pale and shadowy compared with him. And in less time than it takes to breathe, Jill forgot all about the dead king of Narnia and remembered only how she made Eustace fall over the cliff and how she had helped to muff nearly all the signs and about all the snappings and quirlings. And she wanted to say, I'm sorry, but she could not speak. Then the lion drew them towards him with his eyes and bent down and touched their pale faces with his tongue and said, think of that no more. I will not always be scolding. You have done the work for which I sent you into Narnia. In the mere presence of, of Aslan's greatness, Jill's sin was called to mind. And yet, the same awesome presence of glory which threatened her in her sin was for her a refuge and safety. Now, these are slight glimpses, brothers and sisters, mere reflections of the great, awesome, dreadful, holy grace of Christ Jesus. He is the rock of ages. To those who would have him as an enemy, he is a crushing force of omnipotent wrath. But to all who would hide themselves in him, he is safety and security forever. Now I have three pastoral charges for you in closing. The first is this. In light of Advent, worship Christ. In light of Advent, worship Christ. The real Christmas story is not tame or sentimental. The lowliness of the circumstances in which the, the word became flesh is there to leave you dumbstruck by the contrast of his glory. That's what it's there for. The church father, Hilary of Potier, put this point well when he says, 
What worthy return can we make for so great a condescension? The one only begotten God, ineffably born of God, entered a virgin's womb and grew and took the frame of poor humanity. He who upholds the universe, within whom and through whom are all things, was brought forth by common childbirth. He who at he at whose voice archangels and angels tremble, and heaven and earth and all the elements of the world are melted, melted was heard in childish wailing. The invisible and incomprehensible, whom sight and feeling and touch cannot gauge, was wrapped in a cradle. He by whom man was made has nothing to gain by becoming man. It was our gain that God was incarnate and dwelt among us, making all flesh his home by taking upon him the flesh of one. We were raised because he was lowered. Shame to him was glory to us. He being God made flesh his residence and we in return are lifted anew from flesh to God. You should read old books. The scene of Bethlehem should inspire nothing short of worship. The eternally begotten Son of God, without ceasing to be God, became man so that he could bring man back to God. That is incredible. That deserves your worship. So that's the first charge. In light of Advent, worship Christ. Charge number two, in light of Advent, do not fear. In light of Advent, do not fear. We know who it is who sits on heaven's throne. His name is Jesus. He is holy and wise and good. Brothers and sisters, you need to hear this with all seriousness. Do not be afraid. Listen, if the knowledge of Jesus seated on his heavenly throne, laughing at the vain, raging, plotting of rebellious nations does not impact the way that you interpret your circumstances, then your perception of reality needs to be readjusted. The most the most important consequential fact of the year 2020 is not coronavirus. The most important consequential fact of the year 2020 is not mask mandates. It's not the seeming political American crack up. It's not the person who sits in the Oval Office. The most important consequential fact of the year 2020 is that in 2020, Jesus Christ still sits on his throne. He is still writing this story. 2020 was his idea. Believe it or not, Jesus Christ still sits on his throne. So brothers and sisters, expand your vision of the sovereign rule of Christ and let other anxieties and fears diminish. Psalm 2 tells us in no uncertain terms, we may not panic. We don't have permission to panic. We may not be animated and driven by fear. Fear of a virus, fear of political overreach, fear of civic unrest. We may not treat the real problems, the real problems in our world as if they were more consequential than King Jesus sitting on his throne. They're not. So, in light of Advent, do not fear. Third and finally, in light of Advent, take refuge in Christ. He has come. The eternally begotten Son of God has come for us. The rock of ages that threatens to crush us in unbelief has invited us to take refuge in him. This is a charge for the believer and the unbeliever alike. 
for those of us who are believers, where else would we go for safety? We shouldn't run around frantically like we aren't without recourse of hope in this world. We have Christ. What else could we look for? What else could we ask for? An unbeliever, the charge is very much the same. Don't continue in your spurning of Christ's lordship. Don't continue in your raging against him. Rebellion against Christ and his authority is not only foolish, it's dangerous. Be wise and kiss the son. Swear your allegiance to him. Come to him for safety. Unbeliever, what security do you have in the year 2020? Do you have an unshakable foundation? Are you tethered to any sort of stable reality or are you tossed around by the winds of change and unpredictability? There is a refuge from the storm offered to you and his name is Jesus. When all else is unstable, Christ is stable. So the invitation is to come to him. Now as believers, one of the ways we demonstrate our our continued faith in Christ, our continued allegiance and trust in him is by celebrating in this meal of communion together. Paul tells us that as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. With this meal, we are proclaiming. With this meal, we are declaring our allegiance to Christ, that he is the son of Psalm 2, who will speak and terrify the nations in his wrath, and we're trusting in him and in nothing else. So if you're a Christian, we invite you to take this meal as an act of worship of Christ, as an act of communion with him and with one another. Declare with this meal that Christ is your supreme savior, worthy of your undivided adoration. And if you're not a Christian, then this meal isn't for you, and we would ask that you remain in your seats. And instead, while we take this meal, consider this Christ that we've been worshiping all morning. He's better. He is better than whatever threatens to keep you from him. So the invitation is to forsake all else and come to him with your full allegiance by faith. And if that's the case, if you want to do that, we would love to introduce you to our friend Jesus. All of us who who come down and take this meal are, by taking this meal, inviting you to ask us about Christ. Nothing would make us happier than to introduce you to our friend and Lord, Jesus Christ. I'm going to pray and then invite the believers to come down. You'll come down this uh, aisle to my left, get your hand sanitizer over here, and then you will um, receive the elements, uh, the bread and the the cup over here, um, and then return to your seat along this aisle to my right. Let's pray. Almighty God, you have given your only begotten Son to take our nature upon him and to be born of a pure virgin. Grant that we who have been born again and made your children by adoption and grace may daily be renewed by your Holy Spirit through our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom with you and the same Spirit be honor and glory now and forever. Consecrate this meal to your people as we commune by faith with Christ and with one another to your glory and our good. Amen. I love you, Emmaus. Come and take...